0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Since the decline of piracy off the coast of the Horn of Africa, Southeast Asia has re-emerged as the world's hotspot for maritime piracy, with 85 reported attacks in the region in 2020 alone. Unlike much of the rest of the world, Southeast Asia has also seen a resurgence of sophisticated maritime piracy beyond just simple robberies. We're going to be exploring maritime piracy in Southeast Asia today with Justin Hastings, Professor of International Relations and Comparative Politics at the University of Sydney. Justin researches the geography and political economy of clandestine groups, including maritime pirates, organised criminals, terrorists, insurgents, nuclear traffickers and black and grey markets with a particular focus on Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, and the Indian Ocean region. He's the author of No Man's Land, Globalization, Territory, and Clandestine Groups in Southeast Asia, as well as a most enterprising country, North Korea, in the global economy. Justin, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're here to talk about maritime piracy, Is this kind of like what we see in movies like Pirates of the Caribbean with sort of swashbuckling individuals, or is it a much more organized enterprise?
0: You know, it can vary a lot. If You just say, well, how many pirates are there in a given pirate gang in a given attack? the modal number of pirates is one. It's one guy getting on a ship in the middle of the night at port and stealing what he can before he jumps off. Uh, and that's so minor, in some sense, the United Nations doesn't even consider it piracy. It's considered armed robbery at sea. But for my purposes, I say, well, anything, anytime where someone jumps on a ship and does something violent or, or criminal, it's, I call it piracy. But it can be as small as one. It can be as, as large as dozens of people at any given time.
1: And you've just said he, and I'm interested, are there women maritime pirates?
0: So historically, there have been a few. Historians of piracy have focused a lot on them. Oftentimes, they tended to be former wives or partners of male pirates or were forced into piracy for some reason. There was a female pirate leader who commanded hundreds of ships off the coast of southern China in the early 1800s, who was probably the preeminent example of this, where I think her husband originally was the pirate leader, and then she took over and expanded the empire until she was basically able to attack anyone who moved you know, within a few hundred kilometers of the coast of China. That's unusual. I would say most pirates nowadays, to the extent that their gender is mentioned at all, tend to be men.
1: So you've defined maritime piracy as involving violence of some sort, is that right?
0: Uh, or violence or of criminality of some sort. Not all pirates are violent, but you know, the ones that simply steal things off the ship are not necessarily violent, but they are criminal.
1: Okay, so is maritime piracy motivated by political or ideological reasons, or is it about revenue raising?
0: The answer is both, neither, uh, one or the other, and they're often connected. Right? Certainly from a pirate's perspective, if you have a sort of a dominant narrative where pirates are justifying what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing, they'll often put a political or ideological spin on it because it sounds better. So even in Somalia, for example, the pirates there would often claim that they were attacking ships because they wanted to fight illegal fishing in Somali waters and fight sort of toxic waste dumping in Somali waters. Uh, why they attacked sort of passing cargo ships as a result of this is unclear, but you know, at least they had some sort of self-justification for it. In Southeast Asia, the closest you get to that are pirates in the southern Philippines, who are often associated with or paid by Islamist insurgents, especially Abu Sayyaf group. In that case, they have political, ideological, and religious goals, and piracy is a way to raise money to support those goals. But because the money is so good, oftentimes the pirates lose sight of whatever their ideological goal was and start focusing on on the, uh, the revenue raising. They go back and forth. So Abu Sayyaf especially has alternated between being an an actual sort of Islamist group affiliated with Islamic State right now uh, and being primarily a, a kidnapping group that raises money through kidnapping people on land and at sea.
1: Southeast Asia is located right at the crossroads of maritime trade between the Indian Ocean, the South China Sea, and further to the east, the Pacific. Is it simply a question of geography when it comes to the prevalence of piracy in Southeast Asia, or are there other factors?
0: Yeah, I think geography is a big issue in Southeast Asia. If you are shipping things from China to the Middle East or onto Europe or from the Middle East to East Asia, you basically have to go through Southeast Asia. You don't have to go through the the Malacca Strait and the Singapore Strait, although that's the most uh, direct way to do it. In general, you're going to be going through Southeast Asia. Uh, And so Southeast Asia basically sees all of the ships moving between the Middle East and Asia. So there's a lot of ships to target. Then you have a situation where Southeast Asia has these really narrow, really shallow straits. There are some parts of the Malacca Strait where the straits are so shallow that ships basically have to slow down to avoid running aground. And so in this situation, when the ship slows down, they become more vulnerable to pirates. Coincidentally, these straits are not only narrow, but have lots of very small islands around them, uh, where many people live who have boats, sailing knowledge. And people who live on these islands are then able to move forward relatively quickly to attack these, these very slow-moving ships and have their way with them, right? Um, so in that sense, the geography of Southeast Asia really works against it um, when it comes to, comes to piracy.
1: Are there other factors as well that inform the prevalence of piracy in Southeast Asia?
0: Southeast Asia is in a Goldilocks position where the governance of the region is not good enough but also too good for piracy, right? So if you think about it this way… Really war-torn regions, regions that have really big problems with conflict, they tend not to produce very sophisticated piracy because the conflict itself is not only dangerous for people, but also for the pirates themselves. And also the markets that pirates need to make money for sophisticated pirate attacks don't exist in conflict regions. So there's no way for them to actually make money on big hauls. Southeast Asia has those markets and they function pretty well. There's a lot of ports around Southeast Asia. Um, There's a lot of markets that can absorb a lot of stolen goods. So in that sense, it's a good market for pirates. On the other hand, Southeast Asian navies and Southeast Asian governments are often too weak to stop the pirates. So in some sense, if you have a really strong navy, then pirates don't have anywhere to move, they don't have anywhere to operate, and they're deterred. We all watch the movies, you know, the movies Pirates of the Caribbean, for example. And, you know, the question we have is, well, why isn't there any piracy in the Caribbean now? And the answer is because the U.S. Coast Guard is there. Uh, and it, it patrols it specifically to prevent not only drug trafficking, but also piracy in, in the Caribbean. Uh, and I think you even see this reflected in the Piracy of the Caribbean movies, where, you know, over the course of the movies, they eventually end up in Southeast Asia and are sort of having fun in Southeast Asia because they had been locked out of the Caribbean. And so so in this sense, you see Southeast Asia basically being the navies are not powerful enough to stop piracy on an existent basis.
1: That makes complete sense. And I confess, I did not know that the Pirates of the Caribbean movies ended up in Southeast Asia. So I'll have to go and revisit those. You just mentioned strong navies. What constitutes a strong navy when it comes to combating piracy? Is it about patrolling and surveillance? Is it about numbers? What makes a strong navy?
0: Well, you need at least a certain number of, of ships to have patrols or at least have ships that can respond quickly to calls for help. Generally, if you have a sophisticated pirate attack where they take oil off the ship, they're going to do that within no more than six hours. So in that sense, you need, a, you need a Navy that can respond to a call for help in international waters from anywhere in the region within six hours. Uh, and that's, that's a tall order for some Navies. You need a number of ships to do that. You need ships that are actually well-maintained, especially because there's so many disputed maritime boundaries in Southeast Asia and so many countries that abut each other. You need to have really good coordination with other navies in the region and other coast guards in the region to make sure that you don't run into each other's waters, to know what to do if you have to hand off pursuit of you know, a pirate ship from Indonesia to Singapore and vice versa. Uh, and you need to be able to have good communication. If one navy gets intel about a pirate that is loose, it needs to be able to tell another navy very quickly to have this navy operate on the, on the information.
1: So they need six hours to steal oil off a ship. What other commodities are they targeting? Is it just about commodities or is it also about people?
0: I would say it depends on the, the piracy operation, right? So for the, the very basic pirate attacks, the ones that happen nearly every day in Southeast Asia, these are just robberies. They get on the ship, they steal equipment from the ship, they steal money, they steal jewelry, they steal documents. Those documents are very valuable for hiding things. Those people are often on the ship for a few minutes at most. For the the operations where they take oil off the ship, this might take hours. They might even repaint the ship or try to hide the ship in some way, which can give them more time. And you know, what else can they take off the ship? Well, I mean, it used to be the case they would steal the ship itself and sort of repaint the ship and re-register the ship and now now they have their own ship. That hasn't happened as as frequently recently simply because it's no longer that easy to do. You know, now we have ways of tracking ships so that we know if a ship has been stolen. We know there are unique identifiers on the ship that can indicate that it is is not carrying the name that it was originally registered with, for example, usually what they're doing is now stealing the cargo off the ship. Usually it's oil in the past couple of years because oil is easy to take, easy to store on another ship and easy to sell. It's almost impossible to tell where the oil came from when you're selling it. Ship oil is often, you, know, you can also use for yourself. It used to be the case, they would often steal things like tin, things like iron ore. So basically minerals that they could then sort of resell in, in the open market. But that's, that's decreased partly because it's now become more difficult to steal things. In terms of stealing people, yeah, especially in Southeast Asia, this is something that is often associated with conflict regions. So it's not uncommon for pirates to attack a ship, to take the crew hostage, uh, and then usually in Southeast Asia to take the crew off the ship, leave the ship, uh, and make away with the crew and then demand a ransom for the crew.
1: What happens to the ship in that scenario? Uh, They just leave it. I assume it's a danger to shipping in that case.
0: It absolutely is, which is one of the problems. Piracy is not just a, a danger to the people who are actually attacked, but also the detritus that's left as a result of piracy can often be quite, quite dangerous. And in crowded shipping lanes, you have know, a ship that's essentially running adrift. This is dangerous for, for other ships and, and people.
1: You said that there were 85 reported attacks in Southeast Asia in 2020. What are some examples of the big maritime piracy heists in recent years?
0: In recent years, you know, one of the the more interesting ones was a situation where the pirates attacked a ship in the South China Sea off the coast of Indonesia called the Orkim Harmony. And it was an oil tanker. So, you know, the way that you, you basically steal oil off an oil tanker at sea is by attacking the ship, taking control of it bringing your other ship alongside, connecting the hoses to them, and basically siphoning the oil off onto your own, your own ship. Uh, and depending on how much you want to take, this can take a couple minutes or it can take a couple hours or even longer. You know, you can't just take oil and dump it onto a ship. You need to, to move it. And so they did that. But what's interesting about the Orkham Harmony is that within the course of a couple hours, by the time that the, the Navy actually found it, I think it was a Malaysian Navy that, that eventually found it, they had actually repainted the ship and renamed it as a way to try to hide it. And so in, in that case, they know the Navy's coming, but it's a way to delay the Navy from finding them or from doing anything until they, they ascertain that this is in fact the ship. Another good example of this with another ship, and this is one of the tactics that they'll, they'll use. So they, they took control of the ship. The crew that was you know, taken hostage on the ship while they were doing the, the oil transfer sent an alert. The Singaporean police coast guards responded, do you have a problem? And the pirates themselves didn't respond to the police coast guard and said, no, we're fine. We're the crew. Everything's OK. You don't need to come. And so then they held off because they weren't sure if this was the crew or if this was the pirates. And so that gave the pirates a couple more hours to do what they wanted, because in some sense, they're now operating as the crew, right? And that allows them to do what they want.
1: So are governments getting wise to these strategies and tactics being used by the maritime pirates? What are the responses from Southeast Asian governments, both on a state-by-state basis and from a regional perspective?
0: So in Southeast Asia, there's always calls for regional responses, One of the regional responses has been to create information and sharing centers. So, I mean, one of the big problems is, say your crew, you're attacked by a ship, who do you actually call, especially for international waters? How do you get the information to the people that need it who can actually respond to you? And so there are now sort of several information sharing centers. All of them are based in either Malaysia or Singapore, who will receive information from, from crews who are attacked and will also often track ships to see if they do something really... Unusual, like stop responding to the owner's calls and then start deviating from their, their pre-filed trajectory. And then we'll sort of send out information to the local navies so that they can respond. And that's helped a lot. You know, the response time has gone down significantly um, because of this information sharing. There are also cooperation among, among sort of the relevant governments. In Southeast Asia, especially because sovereignty is such a strong issue, they're always willing to coordinate, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're willing to step on each other's toes, right? And so this often creates problems. Say you want to have a joint patrol, which ships patrol where? Are you just patrolling your own waters and you're coordinating that? Or are you actually going together in one country's waters to patrol? It seems like a a simple question, but when you have countries that are very concerned that they are the ones who control their own sovereign waters, it can become quite complicated. You know, on the other hand, I think what we see is, especially the countries that need to work together, on a working level, they've gotten better at working together. So if you have a situation where a ship is attacked in Singapore and then the pirates make off into Indonesia, it becomes fairly straightforward for the Singaporean police to call the, the Indonesian Navy in Batam and to say, hey, you know, there are pirates coming your way, make sure you go and get them. They've gotten a lot better at actually, at actually doing that on a working level.
1: And how are pirates responding to these crackdowns and these more coordinated approaches?
0: So, I mean, the pirates themselves, they've basically changed their tactics, right? I mean, one of the reasons why they don't steal the ships anymore and try to sort of use the ships themselves is precisely because... The governments and the International Maritime Organization, which is the, you know, the body that oversees sort of maritime coordination around the world, you know, instituted a new set of regulations that made it almost impossible to resell a ship that was stolen. So you have to have International Maritime Organization number on the back of your ship, which doesn't change regardless of the name of the ship. It can only be registered in one country, or else you become a stateless ship, which then becomes subject to seizure. You have to have a, a transponder, which tracks your location constantly if you're over 500 tons. A lot of ships are, except for very small fishing vessels. And, you know, and all these things. And also, you know, the ports themselves now become, you know, wise to a ship that shows up with fresh paint, no obvious registration number and, you know, wanting to offload its cargo that they don't have any receipts for. I mean, in that sense, they, the, the states have responded by decreasing the market for this. So the pirates have responded then by saying, well, we're not going to take the ship anymore. We're only going to take the cargo off the ship that can be resold without any questions. And, you know, when you get to things like palm oil, it's a commodity you can't really track, right? So if they have some, then they can, can resell it without any questions asked because, you know, there's no realistic way to track where it, it came from. Um, or, you know, if they really want to take a ship, they just take a really small ship that they can use themselves. That's why among the few ships that have been hijacked and actually taken by pirates recently, they've often been fishing vessels.
1: What could Southeast Asian states be doing better to combat maritime piracy?
0: By depriving pirates of markets for a lot of their goods and for the ships, by decreasing their response time, um, which Southeast Asian navies have done. The question then becomes, well, Southeast Asian governments have responded well, but we often get complacent. The Malacca Strait was a, a huge piracy hotspot in 2000 uh, and up until maybe 2004. When it started declining precipitously and everyone said, OK, well, job well done. You know, Somalia is the new hotspot now. There's no more piracy in Southeast Asia. And then in the past five years, it, it flared up again. Right. And so we often seem to think the problem solved when it's not actually solved. It just went away and they're, you know, they're essentially regrouping. What could states do? I would say that they could continue to decrease the, the market available for pirates. They could continue to improve coordination uh, in terms of being able to chase pirates. They can certainly, and, and this is sort of a long-term issue, they, they really need to deal with their maritime boundary disputes. Because this creates problems where you're not only saying, well, which waters are these pirates actually in, but also it creates coordination problems. Because, you know, if you have a dispute, it's much more difficult to coordinate because both states will claim it's their territory or neither of their territory. This is something that is, you know, has nothing to do with piracy per se, but is, allows pirates to take advantage of it um, when, they're, when they're dealing with you know, where they operate and where they attack.
1: I wanted to ask a question about the ocean as a place to study violence. And it comes back to what you said about the Islamic actors in the southern Philippines being funded, these maritime pirates being funded by the land-based Islamic State. So, I mean, I think the sea is a very interesting place to think about this because once we get beyond state borders into international waters, we're operating beyond the remit of a single state. How do historic understandings inform your research in terms of the sea as a place of historic violence and the way it's currently being used by these, well, state actors operating on behalf of a land-based state?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the sea is a really interesting topic when it comes to violence, because it's one of the few areas where state power can be incredibly overwhelming. At the same time, it can be non-existent, right? So, you know, we have all these regulations and rules about how ships should behave, what they should do, how they should register. And we have navies, which can always outgun pirates, um, you know, no matter where they are in the world. But at the same time, on a daily basis ships are essentially on their own when they're out in the middle of the ocean or when they're traveling around the water. There's a saying where it says when seconds count, the police are only minutes away, right? Uh, And, you know, to a certain extent, it's it's sort of like that with the sea as well. When hours count or when minutes count, the navies are still a long way away. And I mean, there's simply no way to ever have state power cover the sea in the way that it could cover land. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing uh, when it comes to state versus non-state violence and understanding historically how the state operated in Southeast Asia. One of the things I always found fascinating about Southeast Asia is, especially the insular region, is that it's, it's a maritime economy, right? The traditional states in Southeast Asia were essentially sort of states that amassed power by controlling the shipping lanes and to a lesser extent by controlling the rivers that ran into the sea, right? Sort of controlling the inland was irrelevant and sort of how much land you had had wasn't really of, of concern. And one of the reasons why that was true is because the actual networks of trade and of interpersonal interaction, of familial ties, of sort of clan ties, ethnic ties, trade ties actually operate by sea in Southeast Asia, cross straits, right, across bodies of water. But the problem was for, you know, when the modern state came in, as the colonial powers set up the boundaries and then left, they sort of put these, these maritime boundaries in between these straits, right? And so what it meant in some sense is that now people who are originally just informally trading within their, their clan across the strait, what you're doing is now smuggling. It's no longer informal trade. It's now smuggling because you're moving across the border without premature of the state. For a lot of people, this meant that you're now creating criminals, Right? not necessarily pirates, but all kinds of people who find interacting with the state to be costly, to be difficult. And it's often better in Southeast Asia simply to ignore the state and do what you need to do rather than to actually, you know, sort of pay homage to it. And so when you see land-based entities like, you know, Abu Sayyaf group, wanting to say, well, we control this land, but also we're going to make money off of the sea. It's often a continuation of, you know, how these groups or how people from these areas operated in the past. They live on land. I mean, aside from the the Orang Laut in you know Southeast Asia, there are very few people who live right on the ocean. But even in living on the land, they still were, were, you know, their lives were still at sea and across the sea. Piracy in some sense is an extension of that. It's the criminal predatory extension of that. But it sort of represents in some ways the fact that the traditional sort of folkways or the traditional paths of interaction in Southeast Asia across international boundaries and ignore international boundaries in a way that modern states simply aren't comfortable with.
1: Mm. There's certainly um, so much to go forward with when it comes to thinking about those boundaries and the disputes and the way that people move across them on the sea. Does maritime piracy have a future in Southeast Asia?
0: You know, it's always difficult to tell the future, partly because what we say, piracy is to subsided again. So maybe it's gone away forever. And then it sort of rises again, you know, without anyone noticing. One of the things you realize if you go to certain parts of Southeast Asia, where there has been piracy, is you realize just how precarious in some sense uh, a lot of state control is. So if you go to southern Singapore, you go to the southern tip of Singapore, you look into Indonesia, you're looking towards Batam, and then you look off to the right. That island in the distance had pirates on it as recently as 10 years ago. And you think, well, here's this modern city, even Batam is actually pretty modern by, by you know, Indonesian standards, but there's still islands of pirates who could still be alive and are still operating now, right? And there's still piracy in that area, despite the, the state strength that you see. And I think the idea that, well, piracy has no future in Southeast Asia is, is misguided, right? I mean, those people still need to make money. There still are sort of trading networks that cross boundaries like we saw. And even though Southeast Asia is, at this point, getting pretty high tech, I wouldn't say it's a facade, but it's a situation where when it comes down to what happens on the ground, the reality on the ground is often much different, right? And I see no sign that that's changing. Does piracy have a future? It probably does. It may or may not look anything like what we we see now or we saw in the past. Maybe something else. But, you know, it's it's a a situation where I I don't think Southeast Asia, given its geography, its governance, uh, given the traditional cultural issues that they've had around the relationship with the sea... It's simply a region where there will always be at least some low-level hum of piracy.
1: Justin, that was really interesting. I'd be keen to know how you actually do your research. Do you track AIS beacons and read the shipping news and that kind of thing? Or,
0: um, I mean, sometimes. I mean, we, you know, over the past like, 15 years, I've collected like, a, a data set of piracy attacks. And so you can use that to track the trends and how pirates' behavior shifts. So that's one way to do it. I mean, a lot of people go, do go and talk to the pirates themselves. I mean, especially in the Kapuluan Riau. You know, they're always, they're often willing to talk, you know, if you just go to the island. So that's one way to do it. I'm more interested usually in the logistics behind piracy. And the guys on the ground often don't know that because they're not the ones who actually arrange the attack. So here's one story. Maybe 15 years ago when I was writing my PhD dissertation, I went to Batam. And I met with a smuggler in Batam. And he was like one of the biggest smugglers in Batam for VCDs at the time. And he, you know, he told me all about what, what they did. And this discussion took place several hundred meters from the main police station in Batam. This is not something he's hiding. This is something where the police are right there. He was open about it. And, you know, sort of when I went then and talked to the police about piracy and smuggling, and I asked him, I said, well, what's the deal? How do these smugglers actually get these things into, into and out of Batam, right? And, and he said, well, they use rat ports. So in Indonesian, it's uh, Palawan Tikus. And he said, you know, in fact, I have a map of all the rat ports in Batam. And he pulled out this map and he said, there are 64 rat ports in Batam and here they are. And I said, oh, okay, so why don't you um, shut them down? And he said, because then the population will get angry at me. Because the taxes are high enough and the cost of living in Batam is very high relative to the rest of Indonesia, that they basically need to smuggle things in, sort of the basic commodities into Batam to avoid tariffs and things like that, as a way of making ends meet. And if he were to shut those down, then this would cause a political problem for him because now he's he's basically affecting the, the cost of living for much of the population. And, and I think that's, that's often the issue here, right? Um, there are other considerations besides law and order when it comes to a lot of these issues. You could call it corruption. But I, I think it's sort of there are costs and benefits to doing all of this, doing all this stuff. So you want to shut down piracy. Do they know who the pirates are? To a certain extent, they probably know the higher level ones. So you arrest them. What does that do? It might put some people out of work They'd not be happy. Um, it will sort of hurt the people who are supported by those people. And then you'll see some other people who will arise to take their place because the demand for that is still there in those communities. It creates just this really interesting problem. It's, sort of, it's, not, it's not as simple as saying, well, we need to stamp out piracy. It's a much more sophisticated and complicated relationship between criminal activities, gray market activities, and basically survival in, in many of these areas.
1: Justin, thank you so much for a really fascinating podcast. It was really interesting to talk to you about maritime piracy in Southeast Asia.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
1: You've been listening to Act Stories brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.